0: Hello and welcome. My name is Dola Vasani. Following independence, people moved freely within East Africa and across the Commonwealth countries. Following the decree announced by President Idi e. Amin in 1972, what passport you held became very important. It essentially determined where in the world you finally ended up. In this episode of Expulsion at 50, Najma Dawood-Bai shares the experiences of growing up in Uganda, the challenges of leaving, and her reflections and lessons from that time. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation.
1: My life in Uganda was wonderful. I had a lovely childhood because my dad had started to establish himself in the business he was involved with, and uh, I was special to him because he—I was the firstborn. So he had uh, created a Najma watches after my name, and he had created a brand and everything. But setting that aside, my own school, I thoroughly enjoyed. I was quite boyish. I was involved with any activity which came up because I I think it was to do with feeling very comfortable in the environment. primary was wonderful and my secondary was only two years because uh, just after two years we had to leave. So I went to Nakiwubo Primary School and then to Old Kampala Secondary School because my dad was very focused on making sure that I, I had a good education and I was independent and everything. So that is one part. In terms of other part, we had a good social life. We were venturing. I mean, I had traveled to India when I was four because my mom gave birth to my brother in Rajkot and she i, had, I have a, all, a younger sister to me as well and uh, we flew back via east african airways so we were already doing that sort of stuff and we were always traveling and so traveling was part of us from there it was a very comfortable life i would say and i think most people will say that we We had our own car and a a driver came to drop us to school and picked us up and my dad made sure we always went for a ride at the end of the day and we always stopped at confectionery or an ice cream shop or something like that. Although my mom took a while to settle because she came from Rajkot, from India, and uh, she she had come from a privileged background, but my dad wasn't privileged when he started off. He he worked hard because he came with nothing to Uganda and he set up a business and all that takes effort, time and everything. But then by the time we were in sort of mid-60s, we were while well, I was seven, six, seven, I was she was settled and quite happy and everything.
0: Okay. So your father had a business. What type of business was it?
1: Ah, sorry. He he was selling watches, spare parts, although he had watches and the clocks and things. But the watches spare part was his monopoly. He provided spare parts to, I don't know whether you remember, there used to be those little kiosks outside shops where there were people's. Doing the watches repairs because in those days they were not battery operated watches; they were mechanical watches. So you could repair them, and it was. And he had a monopoly. He had customers coming from all over Uga, UK, as Uganda, I meant, as well as from Congo and Kenya as well. So it, it, he had established himself in the watches spare parts in a way. And he used to import things himself from Switzerland. And for somebody who didn't have much education because he started working from 12, 13 and not much of an education, he used to, I have got letters in my garage of the typed letters to order things and get supplies for his business directly. He used to do this, but that's how he started off and everything he used to type everything in, in in those days that's what you did with a carbon copy so the copy letters are sitting there in a file so it is it was wonderful like i've got a copy of the trademark of my natchma watches as well and things like that so he he was quite, in in a way by the time 72 came he was almost towards the slope at the top end of the slope because he'd established himself and he was doing very well.
0: Yeah, so there's something about you know that freedom that that many, 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 in fact, all the people have shared, you know, about so there was this emphasis on, on going to school and you know, investing in education. But you know, when you got home, you, you know, you went out, you played with the neighbors and nobody really you know was monitoring or worrying about oh will they yeah. kidnap will there be this or will
1: that and that i think uh, is is something that we we all just cherish we did. Up till 1970, until Idi Amin came, I think we felt very safe. And I, I I distinctively remember the difference in a sense that we used to go to drive-in cinema, if you remember Darwin. So, <laughs> and that used to finish quite late. And in the past, we didn't mind uh, coming back late home. But after the Idi Amin regime, we were, we were leaving a bit early, not to get caught up on the road in the darkness and all that. But before that, it was we had a really free life. A free, secure, safe, and a happy life. Yeah, and I wonder, Najma,
0: how was the how was the school? Because you did you you finished primary school and then you had two years in secondary school? How would mm. you describe your school? Right,
1: the big difference is they were about, in a classroom of 30, I would say 10 of us were Asian, but 20 were Africans, but we stuck to ourselves, although a couple of them I remember getting to know the girls and a bit friendly, but not all of them, we didn't integrate that much. We really did not integrate, and the other part was that in the schools, we you just mixed with your own Asian community, not necessarily your own community, because I had Hindu friends, uh, Goan friends, uh, uh, Ismaili, Ishnashri, a wide cross-section of people, and uh, but not Ugandans. I can't remember ever asking a Ugandan person to come to my home or anything like that. In the old Kampala school where there was uh, the local indigenous population there, the sports part was where they were thriving and you could see that because the Asians were not that good at some of the sports which they were. And it, uh, that, that was the time when I could see that they were thriving. Really well. But in the classroom, they themselves were not so prominent. They hardly ever came first or second. You know, they used to give these rankings at the end of every term. So, and uh, it's, but in the sports, they were doing very well. And the head teacher was an English person of the old Kampala school. So the colonialism had stayed still there. It was there in a sense. So, and you so see, it was a mixed in that sense that there was the, the Ugandans there, the Asians were there. There were quite a few Asian as well as the European teachers there. But I didn't see any Ugandan teachers, never came across them. So there was a distinction, and to me in itself also tells you that what Idi Amin was saying in some ways was not wrong because the cities were just Asians. They were not, the Africans didn't live next to us. Not like it is now when when you go to Mombasa or Dar es Salaam. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That, you know, you're in a school
0: and I wonder if that that was even ever talked about. You mixed with certain people and you didn't mix with other people. If you ever thought about in terms of like, why was it like that?
1: Well, I don't know. I think the colonialism did play a big part because I think they, 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 they left us thinking that the indigenous population is there to serve us but not as our friends. And that came across with us until you come here and you you learn that this is wrong, what is happening. So that I think that could be it. But, uh, I, but my parents were happy to leave us as children with our households uh, who were Bugandans or uh, the local people, there was no issue. They were not scared of that. Yeah,
0: I think the, the, the common experience is that, you know, there was interaction, you know, in, at school, but not socially. No. And exactly. there was also some interaction, but it was also very hierarchical when it came to the employment or when it came to yes. business. So, like yes. your father, like other people, you know, who, who were doing business with the local Ugandans, were, you know, had good relations because you know they spoke Swahili, they spoke Luganda, they they could yes. have, they could they could converse. They had you know a, a good rapport exactly. there, but there was some kind of a a limitation to how far that relationship got.
1: Correct. Yes. yes definitely so and some did live within those villages and places but how integrated they were is impossible to say that. and i do recall from our community when some somebody had run off they would used to call it run off with a african gentleman <laughs> And it was a big taboo. How can this happen? Do you see what I mean? Taboo and a scandal. And, on the, uh, and a big scandal. Very big scandal. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, And then on the other side, there were men, young men who had mistresses who were of Ugandan origins uh, and that sort of stuff. So it's, it is... It is at a level where it's considered a scandalous stuff to do, not as a norm. Whereas nowadays, you would never think of it as a scandal. The other
0: complexity is like in in, in Uganda, when we did have some uh, mixed marriages, then the children had a very, there was a very derogatory term. Yes, they were called Chotaras. chotaras so that, Which that is also, not nice yeah so that's also a very derogatory term so i yes. think what you're saying also you know is 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 something that other people have mentioned is that when we when we really start to question how how did this system come about
1: mm-hmm.
0: it is it was set up by by yes. the colonial powers and it was set up to serve a particular purpose. Uh, absolutely,
1: absolutely. Because it's it is not just in Africa, it's, it's gone back to the Indian times. It's, uh, we're talking about 300 old years. And it's, uh, it's, it started from then, and then that generation came to Africa and then it just stayed in within us until we left. I think you know, if we are really
0: honest, there is there is an inherent um, racism within within the Indian community around you know there's a hierarchy, you know. Oh, like, very much. You know, so. and, and in the UK, it's 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 got played out a lot that you know, uh aane yes. satte so- pan but kara na.
1: They would say that absolutely, and I recall this: the one of my the friends who she got uh, involved with uh, Afro Caribbean, and she was involved, and she went off with him, and the mother uh, was a bit upset by that, and then another auntie is telling. A story to somebody else that my daughter is uh, got getting married, but it's not. Uh, it's fine because he is an English person, not like the other lady whose daughter has gone off with an Afro Caribbean person. So you are absolutely right. It is there is a hierarchy and there is an inherent uh, racism.
0: Yeah, and then the other thing, uh, particularly in with Hindus, is that the caste system yes. was already there, so that hierarchy was entrenched. You know, it is very much so. So it it's being it's being played out in different ways. And then I think in 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 the African context, you also have the economic uh,
1: disparity. You know, absolutely, absolutely, because the. The economy was against the Africans, in a sense, because they were just being given menial jobs. And that was one of the things I noticed in the school as well, because the the children in that uh, old Kampala school, they came from the government officers' children were there. You, you, you could tell because I remember talking to a couple of them and they, were, they would say, oh, my father is a minister in this office or this ministry or something like that. So even at that level, at that point, when they started coming to the school and they were part of the school system, it was still that, not a person in a village whose child was coming to the school. It was still ministerial yeah so the reason the one
0: of the reasons for that is that the system was set up such that if you are a black person who with education the mm-hmm. most common job that you you got was within government so you yes. became a civil servant and, yes. and so you know your opportunities for, to become an entrepreneur or an industrialist were not were not there at
1: all.
0: Here is uh, Najma, you know, the eldest child, you know, the apple of the eye in 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 terms of you know the father and the family and the great up childhood. And then you are in school, and then something changes, and this 1972
1: August, you know, announcement happens. What do you remember from that time? When the announcement itself happened, I remember my parents to the television and the radio listening to it and we'd been out and we'd just come home and I remember my dad saying no it, it will not happen to us we are talking about a big population here it's not like the Jewish he remembers that uh, the Jewish population left quite suddenly or, or they were only given a week but then more announcements started coming in. And at the point when it came to verifying whether you are a Ugandan or not, people with the Ugandan passport. And we were all Ugandan passport, except for my mom who had a British passport. And although our names were in, still in her passport, the children's names were still in her passport, British passport, we were holding our own Ugandan passports. And we we all queued up for hours for days to get our passport verified and the queues were long we're talking about miles queues we would be there from the morning the atmosphere in that queue was quite unusual in a sense everybody was scared because the army were guiding those queues as well they were around too. But most of the people in that queue, they had all felt Uganda was their home because they had taken the Ugandan nationality and they were they, they had made that place their home. And then after I think three or four days, we got to the office and the person at the behind the desk text looks at the passport and takes them away and says, you are not Ugandan. No way, you are not. So he just took it away and put it. They, they had those those bins next to them, just put them in. So, and my dad is explaining that. But I'm born in Zanzibar, so and I. But he, they they were not listening. They don't listen. It was very abrupt, very short. In literally five minutes or so, that was it. End of story. You are not Ugandan, and we left, and then. That's when the mood really changed, sort of. That I would say that was second week or third week in August, because now we were worried that if we are not Ugandan, what do we do? What are we, we have to leave? No, he. Yeah, my dad asked him. That so, what does that mean? Do we have to leave? Yes, you are not Ugandan, so you have to leave. You are Asian, or whatever he said, he said you have to leave. So then. He started thinking, and my mom just wanted to go to India. Because she said, let's go to India. So the first stop was for us to go to the Indian High Commission and see if we can get to India. But the Indian High Commission said, no, I mean, the only person we can take you is your mom, my mom, because she's born there. And maybe the children, because her names, their names are in there, but not you. But my mom was not willing to travel by herself, so that was end of that story, then we started going to other embassies any because somebody would say to a uh, friends would come over and say that. Uh, Try UK they will take you so we, we started with the second stop was you and the UK High Commission again they, the queues were huge. Because people who had UK passport had to get visas to get or some sort of verification to get here. Once we got there, they said no. Only the if you if the head of the family is British, then only you can come. Or my mom can come by herself, but not you. Same story. There was no way my mom would travel by herself. She didn't. She wouldn't. And. Then we started other places. uh, sort of uh, European places. uh, American places, even New Zealand, because somebody said New Zealand and Australia are taking people as well. So, but everybody said no, not yet, no, we we haven't had any instructions of people who are not with the nationality at the moment you, you have to wait. But we couldn't wait because my dad was starting to get worried because by this time we are looking at second week in September or so. And the town is getting empty. You could feel the numbers getting less and less. In fact, uh, our apartment was in the center of Kampala. There was only about three or four people left in that apartments. Most of them had either gone off to India or most of them had come to Britain to tell you the truth. And it became rather scary. And then the Ugandans who were my dad's clients said, we can get the military to keep you here because we would like you to stay. We don't want you, they were meaning well, but it was, became quite scary that they started coming to see him at our place. Because by this time, the shop was almost closed down. Had, uh, he started getting worried that what if we can't leave and we would be stuck here. So then we approached Pakistan. Somebody said that because you are Muslim, Pakistan are taking people. So go there. So we went there. Uh, now it's the end of September. And uh, they they sort of said, said Pakistan said that yes, we'll take you, but as a refugee status. So he got uh, sort of a Force, not a four, sort of a five side piece of paper, sort of a traveling refugee traveling document. And there was a bit of relief because we had traveled to Pakistan back in 1970, 71, Okay, so this is really interesting that although your mother
0: was born in India, she relinquished her Indian citizenship and had a UK passport, yes. and your father, maybe because of the business, had a Ugandan passport, and that all the children had Ugandan passports. That also is unusual. Yes. Because as you say, you know, most times the children are in the mother's passport. Yes. And then you kind of get the door slammed on you at all these different places. And what is very interesting is that the UK High Commission, the British High Commission, as a way of trying to limit the numbers, yes. you know, started genderizing um, the qualification, whether you could go or couldn't go. So yes. the head of the household is seen as the man, you know, unlike many people who had, who, who didn't travel, in, in in your case, your family traveled, but that didn't, the papers at that time didn't seem to matter. No, because we were traveling on our Ugandan passport. Yeah, but what, yeah, so it didn't matter when, you know, whether it, you had a Ugandan passport or an Indian yes. passport or a British passport. Exactly. You just yes. travel for for Leisure. Leisure. Like, yeah, now it became a, became an issue. So you
1: became stateless, really. Exactly that. That's exactly how he was called, classified, and that piece of paper. You get a piece of paper to say you are stateless. Uh,
0: Okay, so then you're packing up and you're getting everything ready and, you, you know, there's a sort of anxious, anxiety, a lot of anxiety and fear. And then what do you
1: remember about leaving the country? That's it. We started packing up. We created a couple of boxes of things. we, And that was it. I think we left on the... 8th or 9th of October, three weeks before the deadline was coming to the end. I, I can remember how ghost town it felt towards the end of uh, September, early October, by the time when we left. You could see the militaries driving around with the guns and all that, but not much of the public whoever were were left behind, like us, we were staying indoors most of the time.
0: And may I ask Najma, how old were you? I was
1: 72, I was 14. I remember my dad had literally just before the uh, announcement had got a brand new car out (laughs) and we were uh, sort of, uh, there was no buyers basically. I mean, the only thing they would have let So we sort of, we had friends who had decided that they didn't want to leave you, no matter what, they were going to leave, they stayed behind. And the gentleman said that, don't worry, because they came to drop us to the airport. And he, my dad said that you can keep it, uh, whatever you can do. So that was one thing. The other part was that uh, when we got to the airport, The two boxes which we had packed up uh, with all our belongings, very minimal belongings. I mean, how much can you pack in a A sort of uh, a foot or two foot by two foot box? Not much. We could see them. They had already been broken and all that. And we were thinking, might as well say goodbye here. Very scared of that journey because we had heard the stories of how the, once the military stops you, you are done. We were stopped a couple of times on the road to Entebbe, but we were lucky. We just, we had to show our passport and we would go, flight details and that was it. Uh, and uh, we got on the plane thinking this is it now. We are leaving, my mom crying away and my dad being, keeping her composed, his compose. But it was sad, it was very, very sad. And then we arrived in Karachi. There wasn't anybody to welcome you or anything like that. There wasn't any setup to look what the British got here. And uh, we went to, I don't know whether you heard of, uh, it's like a guest house for the visitors, our community, Khana. So we went there because we'd we'd been there before two years before, and I have an auntie in Karachi as well, and uh, she sort of uh, said that no no come home. So but we 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 went with them, and I we were there at their place for about two months or so, and then my dad got a flat where we. I must say my dad was quite forward thinking. Although he was so established, he had planned thinking that when I grow up, I have to come to Britain to study. So the money was sent here for my studying. He was sending money out. So in Pakistan, we, we sold some of the gold and we bought a place, the flat. And we were there for about coming up to two years, not quite two years, but two years. You end up in Karachi, and then
0: you have, have to start a new life. Yes. And how, how, what do you remember about being in, in, in that city, in Karachi?
1: It was very different. So getting on the bus, oh, my God, it was nightmare. I think a woman in that country, even in their, those days, you you don't feel that safe. You, you didn't, I remember being touched up. I mean, you can get touched up in London Underground and all that, but it, it, there the, the men are superior and they have much more control over whatever happens in a sense. So I remember that, I remember it was very, very hot. God, the heat was the other thing because Uganda wasn't that hot. It was very pleasant. But the good part was that my dad was making sure we had lots of different fruits. At the beginning, we really thought that there was nowhere else to go, so you have to settle here. There was no other option, in a sense. And uh, we just did our best. But uh, when the opportunity of coming to here came, we definitely were excited about it. So that's how I would say I would describe. But then in 1973 or early 74, I don't know when, I think the British government changed and the equality rules came in. And they said that, why does it have to be a male who is to be a British? It, it can be a female person and then the spouse can come as well. And once that announcement came through, my mom said, oh, because when we were in Pakistan, she was, she was not happy at all because all she wants to do is get to India. But at that time, there's India-Pakistan war. We couldn't go to India at all from Pakistan. It wasn't possible. So when this announcement happened, so my dad said, Okay, we'll get to UK first. And from there we can always go to India. So we applied, our application was accepted. We sold up the flat and the cost money from the sale of the flat got us the tickets to come here.
0: So Najma, um, let's fast forward your life in the UK after settling down here. I wonder what happened to Uganda in your life.
1: Where was it? Now, that's a very good question because uh, early 90s, 91 or 92, when the change of government happened, they were asking people to come and collect their properties. And we had properties there and uh, we wanted to go back and so my dad said that there's no way I want to go back he was he never wanted to go back but my brother went back and we reclaimed the properties
0: and what about you and you have you
1: ever thought yes yes I went back I went back in 2007 it was wonderful trip Wonderful trip in a sense that it was lovely to go down the memory lane. I visited my Naki Wubo school and all Kampala school and we also went and saw the apartment we were living in and it was, it was lovely because it was me, my sister and another friend of ours. So all three girls, we were there and it was wonderful trip in a sense that First of all, we chose this agent and the car and the driver, but we said to the agent that because we are only three girls traveling, I want to be comfortable with the driver. And it was really lovely because when he would be driving, I would say, I think the post office should be coming on the right-hand side. And, and then he would say, this madam knows it very well, where's my sister? And they didn't have a clue at all and things like that. and then. It was it was lovely. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And there were two reasons. One was that I found that the Ugandans there are a different Ugandan than what we had left behind. There's a generation which has been wiped out, and this generation doesn't even remember anything about Idi Amin at all because he was not that old. He was, he must have been born in. I don't know, uh, eight, uh, 80s, because I think he was in his mid-20s or something, late mid to late 20s. And the other thing he, in the end, said to us was, because we used to ask him to sit with us for our, when we were having, stopping for lunches and things like that, and when we left, he said to us that, you know, I have... I've done a lot of trips with a lot of people, but nobody has treated me like this. And I was taken aback by that because I didn't think that I was treating him any differently than I would do anybody else. And it's, it's, it's left with me thinking that I'm so glad that I've changed, that this person thinks that we are not what we were, what we left behind. I would say that life has been tough, but we've come through on the other end. And my thinking is that you have to take every day as it comes because you don't know what's going to happen with your health or with your wealth. You can have it one day and it can be gone tomorrow.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to Najma's story. Do share it with your friends and family. Till the next episode, take care and keep safe.